Thank you for joining us at MindSpeak, the show that delves into global issues with a local perspective. This is a voice, not an echo. If you can't speak your mind, you can't be human. Hi, folks. This is MindSpeak, and I'm your host, Mark Anthony Rossi. Now, today we're going to be doing a show about Puerto Rico. It's going to be different than, than most shows because it's not really just about Puerto Rico or even its culture. And we're going to definitely talk about those things because they're important. But I have a lot of personal connections with, with Puerto Rico in, in my own life over the years. And, and, and recent events made it this, that much more important to talk about for me. So I, I wanted to do a show that amongst the, the few places in the world that I really had a, a connection with, especially with the, with the people, um, Puerto Rico comes to, to mind. And I didn't want to discount it in, in my life. or uh, I certainly have in my writings because I really didn't even know where to start on something like that. So I thought the show would be the best way to kind of open up and talk about that and, and have, a, I find, a, a, a fun and interesting show, a different spin, if you might want to say, on it. Now, I wanted to play this. This is um, a music from Puerto Rico called Bamba. It's the oldest of, of the music from Puerto Rico, over 400 years old in terms of its creation and style. There's a lot of forms of of music from Puerto Rico. You got salsa, you got merengue. They got a they got a number of them over there. There's probably like like seven or eight different types. And and, and most of them involve uh, of course some kind of a singing in Spanish and you know, as much as I've loved Puerto Rico, I've never really exactly embraced the, the language of Spanish. It's never been a, a forte of mine or a strength of mine of languages in general. But um the great thing about Bamba is it's, it's percussion based. It, there's not often a lot of singing going on because it's more about the percussion and, and the various dancing that 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 transpires during during the music, and that's probably one of the reasons why I liked it so much is because it it seems to be very theatrical and, and in many ways uh, a, a very very beautiful. So uh, I'll play a little bit of that for you, and then we can kind of go from there. Okay. Now, hopefully, that'll kind of at least give you an idea of that type of uh, of, of music. The the important thing about uh, Bamba is not just that it's 400 years old, but it's it's strictly a, a, an African uh, creation brought over uh, by uh, by African uh, slaves uh, from the from the Europeans to Puerto Rico, and we'll talk about how that all merged. But uh, it, it is really, uh, in that particular uh, culture, the, the foundation of many of the musical forms that they were able to create later on. And uh, it's, it's not only beautiful, but it's really a, 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 a sight to see. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that as we, we go along with the show. I, I want to just pretty much start pretty much from the, from the beginning of uh, what Puerto Rico is. Because sometimes people who are not... Uh, from the East Coast or just don't have a direct relationship at all with anybody that's Puerto Rican, there's a lot that people don't know about Puerto Rico. And maybe people who listen to the show might actually get a bit educated about this because I'm always surprised by um, 
people's lack of information about Puerto Rico. I, I guess you just take it for granted on things that you know already because you grew up around that sort of thing. But it's it's just amazing how there's so much uh, about the culture that people do not understand. So let's kind of start with a little bit of education about that, okay? Now, Puerto Rico is actually Spanish for rich port, which I always found uh, funny about languages in general, and particularly uh, the language of Spanish, is that many times the word or even the phrase or possibly even the location could be very specific. So it, 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 you think about it, and in English, I mean, uh, where do you live at? Oh, you live over in the rich port. It, it doesn't make any sense uh, in an English sort of thinking way. But in, in the Spanish, it makes a, a lot of sense because it's not merely about, you know, let's call this some cool name. It's really just about, yeah, we're poor and we're rich. This is a lot of beautiful, wonderful things here. So from that type of thinking, it makes a whole lot of sense. I remember I had a um, couple of uh, Puerto Rican friends, especially one of my uh, uh, friends who was an artist as well, and, and they were from uh, an area in Puerto Rico uh, called Rincon, which literally means corner in Spanish. But, and you're like, corner? What the heck? And that's why you always have to be uh, uh, laughably suspicious about a Spanish word, because if you look into it a little bit further, and you're like, corner? And then you look on the map, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, there it is in Puerto Rico. They're up in the north. It's actually in the corner of, of the map. So, it, it but yeah, it makes a whole lot of sense. You, it, it's it's geographically logical. <laughs> And uh, so that's really what I like about it. I always found that uh, fascinating. Now, Puerto Rico is an, inc an incredible mix of various cultures that came together through, through history. Unfortunately, not all of it very positive history because uh, um, the, the institution of both uh, colonization and, 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 and slavery are not exactly uh, positive benefits to anybody. Okay, especially if you're on the side of, you know, being colonized or being enslaved. Not exactly a wonderful experience. But what I always found fascinating about Puerto Rico is unlike a lot of places that have gone through this sort of thing, and they did mix and merge and do things to try to remain uh, strong and unique and interesting. Puerto Rico's really reveled in this more than most other places. They have... Uh, a respectful understanding of their history. They don't have a denial about it, and they love it, and they like the mixture, and they see the strength and the power and all of that, and, and it comes out in their culture, and it comes out in their attitude. It comes out in, in how they even govern their families you know, in, in a very loving and, and, and positive, fun way. One of the things I always liked about hanging around Puerto Ricans is the family always seemed to be just positive and funny and 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 of course uh revolved a lot about food <laughs> uh which we'll talk about as well because it's it's another one of those things i love about puerto rico is sort of like italians and a few other cultures i know uh, particularly that are interested in food uh puerto ricans are definitely interested in food so they are on, like on the top of my list of just people you want to watch because they love food and they even love other people's food too so it's not just puerto rican food so I'm like, yeah, I like these people a lot. <laughs> All right. So Puerto Rico 
uh, gets discovered by Christopher Columbus, which is a funny irony because uh, you got all these people protesting in America about Christopher Columbus. Oh, he hated America. Oh, he's a racist. Oh, he's this. Oh, he's that. He's never been to North America before. Okay? He's an Italian explorer, had to borrow money and, and, and ships from Spain to find things around the world, and he discovered Puerto Rico. Not North America, Puerto Rico. Okay? They, of course, being Spain, claimed it for themselves. And they spent a lot of time over the over the centuries uh, indoctrinating people into uh, into a Christianity, or in this particular case, Roman Catholicism. Of course, uh, you know, using the island as, as a port uh, for their ships for repair. You know, you got the invention of rum and, and various spices and and the foods. Of course, later on, you had the slave culture that came into there again, mixing in with with people. Um, what I always thought that was very uh, unusual about uh, Puerto Rico is over the course of time, and of course, especially the time that, that I've known them, and I've only been on the earth, you know, plus 50 years. I haven't been around 500 years, okay? But I always found them to be fiercely independent, which is unusual when you think about it because the entire Puerto Rican culture even though it's been put together by Puerto Ricans and, and carved into something that they feel is strong and unique, and it is, um, it's strange to be independent when you've had 500 years of dependence, whether it might be on uh, Spain as the colonizer or, or the slave trade or all the various stops and, and ships that came in, and then eventually... Spain loses the war with uh, with America in 1898, and now Puerto Rico becomes the territory of the United States. As of, I don't know, this is an exact year over here, so let me let me get that over here. All right, okay, there we go. All right, so as of 1917, um, anyone who lives on Puerto Rico is an automatic citizen. Now. A lot of people are not aware of that. I always found it cruelly ironic. And I know that the people who were putting this together were trying to demonstrate love and, and prejudice and the effects of all of this. And we're talking about West Side Story. It's really the first time for an American audience where they've seen anybody at all being Puerto Rican. Okay? And... uh I think that was a Rita Moreno that was in the great Puerto Rican actress. Beautiful, by the way. And I think even though their intentions were good, there's so many things about West Side Story that doesn't really help the audience to understand anything really about Puerto Rico. Because in many ways, especially even some of the music, which I kind of found to be dumb. I'm, I'm sorry. I just, you know what I mean? You know, it, it's, you know, it's wonderful to be American and blah, blah, blah. I mean... I don't understand what the hell that's supposed to mean because even when this show, uh, and of course, you know, became a stage musical and a film, you know, it was more popular as a film. Um, even when that, when when I came out, I mean, Puerto Ricans at that point were already American citizens for, for over fifty years. I mean, American citizens. So the idea, which the show in many ways seems to you know, in, in foster, at, at least. Uh, that there was some immigration going on, or hell, even the word migration, it never made any sense to me. I, I'm not Puerto Rican, and I'm like, this doesn't make a lot of sense to me, because I've lived 
and understood a great deal with them as I was growing up in, in, a, in a neighborhood that, that was German, Italian, and Puerto Rican. So, uh, which is pretty ironic because uh, those uh, three groups tend to be a big factor in my life uh, in, in many different ways, from, from, from thinking to culture to books to women. I mean, they, they, all of those were, were a big part of my life. It's just, I don't know how it worked out that way, but it did. And we could talk a little bit about that. But I don't think the American audience ever understood that. So it, it almost seemed like they, um, they compared them to a, a different Hispanic groups. Uh, a, a perfect example would be like Cuba. Because, you know, unless you were born here in America as a Cuban, you're coming from the island, you're not an American citizen, that's an immigration situation. And, of course, worse when uh, that horrible uh, Fidel Castro took over and, you know, tried to kill everybody who didn't believe in communism. Or, of course, if you're coming from Guatemala, or, of course, the, the more the more popular and the more, I guess you could say, culturally um, accepted or at least understood more in America would be the Mexican uh, experience, where, again, unless you already lived here for a long time, uh, you were coming across a border, and, of course, you were not a legal citizen. It was an immigration situation, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. So I think, in many ways, the Puerto Rican and, and, and popular thinking and, and, of course, even in, in film and culture and the media, uh, no one really gave that kind of, like, distinction or that information. So it, it's many ways they kind of looked at Puerto Rico as, you know, the eastern side of the United States Mexican person. But there is really nothing at all in common between the two groups other than Spanish. And even then, uh, some of the Spanish is, is particular to Puerto Rico and sometimes even particular to Mexico. Because, you know, you, you, you pretty much make adaptions to the language that's been brought to you. Because Mexico, just like Puerto Rico, you know, had a, a huge Spanish colonization stage and, and made a lot of adaptions to it. Uh, different than Puerto Rico in, in the sense that Puerto Rico had a much, much longer, uh, I think you could say, uh, colonization time than, than Mexico did. So they had a lot more adaptions compared to, to Mexico. But... A lot of people never realized that. I, I always joked uh, to my father, because sometimes he never understood my jokes. I was a little bit more cultural and intellectual than he was. You know, I had I had parents that, uh, Italian and Chinese, and I tell you something, they, um, and I don't, I don't mean this in, in a bad way. These are my parents, and they're, they're both, uh, they're both gone now, um, they believed in the American dream so much that in, in many in many aspects, I don't even know if they understood it consciously or not, they just seemed to want to be more American than they wanted to be Italian or Chinese, particularly my mother. She, I mean, I don't even think she admitted to being Chinese half the time. So, I mean, I'm serious. She just didn't care. She didn't think it was important. In fact, in many instances, she thought it was an obstacle. And I think in many ways, I kind of gravitated to... The Puerto Ricans in my neighborhood and, and, and the culture in, in, in general and, and, and just the friendships I had. And later on when I grew up at the dating of Puerto Rican girls, I appreciated it more because I, I, just, I just never found a Puerto Rican person that was running away from their culture. I don't say this in, the, in a judgmental way, I, especially when I'm talking about my parents over here. I'm being honest I'm, and I'm being respectful, but... It's just a fact. I mean, there's no other way for me to interpret that. 
I just never found Puerto Ricans to be that way. I always found them to be incredibly embracing of their culture and, and their heritage. It doesn't mean they didn't embrace America. That's, I, 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 there was very few I ever grew up with that they didn't speak English and, and spoke it well. In fact, the only, t- only time I've ever uh, spoke to somebody uh, who was Puerto Rican that, that didn't really converse well with, with English was really the much, much older ones. You know, sometimes if I go to the bodega, which is a, a store, like a Puerto Rican store, you know, you, you might have somebody behind the counter or even the owner that, you know, it's just not a big <laughs> big part of their life speaking English. They could care less, you know. So I was like, okay, I'm doing my best here. But um, I, they seem to... And the word we used to use in America was that assimilation. But they seem to have a different idea about assimilation than everybody else did in Puerto Rico. So <laughs> they, they had, I, I like to call it adopted <laughs> America. And maybe sometimes it's clothing and, and customs and even some of its language. Uh, but I don't know if they ever really assimilated. They, they, they remain Puerto Ricans who happen to be American. Or maybe Americans that happen to be Puerto Rican. I'm not really sure exactly how you want to phrase that. But I, I can tell you one thing. Yeah, I, they just never forgot who they were. And I always, always admired that because it wasn't some stubborn belief you know, and, and, and being, uh, being a rebel, you know, it wasn't some, uh, you know, the hell with you, America, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. It, it, to me, it was always about, this is who I am. This is where I come from. This is how I continue to want to live my life. This is a free country, America. So for anyone to be able to do that, we, we should easily accept that. And I think sometimes that when we don't, as Americans, uh, we, we create barriers that we shouldn't and, and we wound up making prejudices that shouldn't be there. And then sometimes those things, they become a form of racism or even racism because, you know, racism doesn't happen overnight. It steps to it. You got the barrier, you got the prejudice, the next thing you know. It, so if you could watch out for those steps, you could watch out to not be that. And I'm just very fortunate to be around people that... Uh, they wasn't difficult towards me or prejudicial towards me because, hell, if you think they were different, they, they can imagine how they looked at me. <laughs> I mean, I'm about as different as, as they probably have met, somebody that's Italian and Chinese and Protestant. <laughs> so, I mean, you're talking about being an outsider all across the board. Uh, yeah, that would definitely be me. And maybe it's the reason why I felt so comfortable around them and, and how they felt comfortable about me. Because I think in many instances, we all kind of felt like a bit of an outsider. <laughs> in America, anyway. Now, Puerto Rico is extremely interesting and, and different because also, you had a lot of people that when they came to America to learn, to live, to work. Because not everybody wanted to stay in Puerto Rico. Sometimes the, the employment there wasn't wasn't really the best, especially in the 50s and 60s. It really didn't start becoming a big tax haven and a big place where there was manufacturing and more employment and more people went back until like really in, in the mid-70s and in, into the 80s. So you got people who came uh, to uh, to America from, from Puerto Rico because this is more of a land of opportunity than Puerto Rico was at the time. And they did so at the hardship of they're leaving someplace beautiful and you go into New York. Hey folks, I'm from New Jersey, so I don't mean to make fun of New York, but I swear to God, 
Have you ever been to Puerto Rico before? And I have. And then you go to New York, you're like, what the hell is this? It's a bunch of a bunch of stupid buildings and machines and everybody running around being rude. Compared to Puerto Rico, it's beautiful and people being friendly and not trying to be jerks, <laughs> you know, and, and, and interesting. And so if you're talking about it's a culture shock, God, I can imagine. So you come into America, lots of people had to do a lot of adjusting, and particularly the writers. Uh, it's another reason why I love Puerto Rico so much is because I thought that the writers were fantastic. They said things to me that I understood. And, of course, they did it oftentimes in English and in Spanish. In fact, some of these poets, and we'll talk about them here in a moment, uh, they wrote first in English, and then later on, when they had it adapted for the Spanish audience, then put it in Spanish, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. But that's what they did. I don't know if that's what was necessary for them at the time, or just a better with English, or it just seemed like it was a you know a smarter idea to do, or or if that's just you know they became more was more more familiar with English and just sort of went about that. I'm not really sure. I never got a chance to ask on, but I did meet one, and we'll talk about that too. Um, I really wish I could have asked him that question, but, it, you know, I guess at the time it just didn't make any sense. Now I'm like, I'm thinking about it, but uh, it didn't make any sense back then. Okay. Now, like I was mentioning to you before, my, my father was an Italian fellow. He was a union man, worked in the foundries uh, for the shipbuilding uh, companies there in New Jersey. And he wasn't a person you would want to call uh, with a background in education, you know? He used to laugh at me. He said, yeah, I graduated from high school like barely. And, and I didn't really care for that. So he, he, he was kind of a street smart kind of guy. He, he was a hard worker and, uh, you know, a decent, honest guy. I, I liked the fact, unlike my mother, who was very political and very cryptic and very mysterious. This is probably why uh, I kind of like women that way, because I think I got that from my mother. <laughs> I know it sounds weird, but I really do think that. Um, my father was was pretty uh, pretty direct, as most New Jersey people are, and 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 of course, uh, very simple in, in in his language and thinking. He could cross things over quickly because he wasn't a guy that was full of a lot of barriers. Yeah, I don't think he cared too much about being an Italian one way or the other, you know, but because he just I think he just likes being American really, but uh, he could relate, and he did so. And one of the things he related was, he's like, Mark, this, uh, and this, is a, this is exactly how he put it, too, okay? He goes, Mark, uh, so I'm, I'm in this shop meeting, okay? And that, that's usually the, the talk of a, a union person. You know, everything's a freaking shop. <laughs> I'm in this shop meeting. I don't know why he just can't say I'm in this union meeting. But they're like, I'm in this shop meeting. And this Puerto Rican guy, he starts reading this poem, right? And I can't believe that it was a Puerto Rican guy that wrote this because... I completely understand and relate. I, it's just amazing. And I'm like, well, Dad, you know, uh, if he's living here in America, he has an American kind of experience, you, you, you might actually make a connection. It doesn't have to be an Italian guy. You don't have to be a Puerto Rican guy to understand that. He goes, yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much the truth. He must be a union person. Because my father always said, if he understood you, you must be a union person. <laughs> I, I God bless him, but I, I never really understood what he meant by that. Maybe that was just his way of, of connecting with people. It's just calling everybody a union person. Now, this poem, which is called Puerto Rican Obituary, is, is a huge poem in the Puerto Rican culture. It's it's a master poem from 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 the, the master poet, uh, Puerto Rican poet, uh, Pedro uh, Pietri. 
And he was one of the co-founders of the Nina Rican movement there in New York, where they had a cafe and everybody would read poetry and, and learn about the Puerto Rican culture, but also learn about tackling discrimination in America and tackling depression as somebody that now has to adapt to a new culture because this is where their parents brought them and they're not always sure if they can adapt or if they want to adapt or if they want to be even friends with people that look at them like they're from outer space. I can just imagine how they could be. I, I, I know a few of those sort of feelings from growing up in, in different ways, but it, it certainly wasn't as brutal as any of that. So I can relate, but you know, only to a certain extent. So I'm not going to fool you and say, I, I know exactly what he's talking about. No, I don't know exactly what he's talking about, but I, I have a good idea. And and his worker, though, helps me understand more. And it helped me, my father understand more. My father's over here reading his poem. He goes, he wrote it down for me. I'm like, what? Yeah, but apparently later on in, in Petrie's career, he'd pass out like little cards that he had made up and they would have like dominoes, uh, symbols on them, and they would have this poem and sometimes other poems so that people can actually read along as he's reading the poem in the, either the cafe or on an event, a cultural event or something. Poetry was just important. And I'm like, this is great. Let's, I'm just loving this. So I'm going to read this to you. It, it's a long poem, but we're only going to read the short part because it's really the part that got my father <laughs> like excited about Puerto Rican poetry, believe it or not. And, and kind of got me more involved too. So here, here's the here's the the, the funny the, the funny fact. Uh, my father, who's practically uh, you know a, a, a high school graduate and nothing more. I don't even think I ever seen him with a book in his life before. I'm not kidding you. Uh, goes over to a shop meeting and discovers Puerto Rican poetry. <laughs> Only an American could you hear a story like this. All right, I'm telling you. All right, so here we go. Uh, and this is a very important Puerto Rican poem, by the way, okay? It's called Puerto Rican Obituary. All right? They worked. They were always on time. They were never late. They never spoke back when they were insulted. They never worked. They never took days off. They were not on the calendar. They never went on strike without permission. They worked 10 days a week. They were only paid for five. They worked, they worked, they worked, and they died. They died broke. They died Owen. They died never knowing what the front entrance of the First National Bank looks like. So it's incredible. Um, my father really took a shine, like they used to say in Jersey, to that to that poem. He thought that it spoke to the uh, to the class of people that were uh, trying to emerge into the middle class from the lower middle class through union representation and getting a decent wage at the job which is really a bigger part of his life, and, and in some aspects, my mother's. But my mother was a nurse with a college education and, and pretty much a white-collar worker. So she spoke that language, but she didn't live that experience like my father did. Uh, that made him a bit different in that way. My, my father just said that he thought that poem spoke a lot to him about understanding how people had to climb themselves up to some place in America in order to feel like maybe they have a voice in what was going on. Maybe they could actually be accepted. And my father told me something curious, curiously that I didn't know. And he thought that that poem spoke to that situation. He said, you know, we have classes here with people that once they've learned enough about 
living in America and once they learned enough about going into the middle class that they needed to open a bank account and they didn't even know how to do that. But they needed it. It was important to have. And literally the union actually had classes on teaching people how to open your first banking account, how to use checks, what you needed to do, etc. They didn't have direct deposit back then, but my father always thought it was better and smarter and safer to get your check and then, you know, go to the bank and drop it off versus, you know, go to some cash check in place and, you know, you could get robbed, bad things happen in the city. It's, that's just the way life is. You know, he just thought it was safer and more American. <laughs> and and he saw that in the poem and he was like, yeah, yeah, this guy must be a union guy. You know, um, I read enough about Petro's life and I'm, I'm not thinking he was a union guy, okay? But, uh... <laughs> It just shows you how much uh, writing in general, no matter where you come from, how it could actually speak to you, okay? Now, there was somebody that later on my father said, we got to go, we got to go listen to him. He came down to, to New Jersey to speak at one of the, uh, one of the, uh, the, the bodega places, okay? It was, uh, not bodega, I'm sorry, it was the Botanica. That's what the Puerto Ricans called it. It's a store that, it sold all the various um, ritual items that you would need either as a Roman Catholic, uh, various saint statues, uh, rosary beads, all types of different candles, incense, uh, prayer cards in Spanish, which was important because many a times when people go to the shops uh, to get a prayer card, it's going to be in English. And if you don't, especially if you're older, if you don't feel strong enough about that, having a prayer card in English is not really too helpful. I mean, yeah, maybe God will understand you're trying your best, but I think they just wanted to be able to communicate in a way that they wanted to communicate. And in that particular sense, the Botanica helped out because it had all the things you needed to have in Spanish. Even the candles were written in Spanish. So it was pretty cool. And um, he came down, and this was uh, Miguel Pinero, one of the one of the great Puerto Rican uh, writers and poets, uh, another, another of the co-founders of the New Rican movement there in New York. And he came down to speak at that uh, Botanica, and he read some of his work. And my father brought me over there to him to listen to him. And when he started opening his mouth, I could hear his passion. I can hear, wow, he's great. But I said to my father, you know, you didn't mention that he was just going to do this in Spanish because um, I'm, not, I'm not really catching any of this. <laughs> uh, Later on, I don't know if he heard me from the back or it was just a, a, one of those gifts from God, but he, he did a couple of them in English, too. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> but uh, it was a, a wonderful experience. Uh, he, he's a, an incredible uh, uh, writer. When I was still in Germany going through lots of stuff, uh, he died in 1988. Um, he's a very complicated man. He was a playwright. I saw his play later on after I got out of the Air Force. So masses are asses. <laughs> it was a funny play, kind of a socialist bit of a play, but it had a lot of important points about people often uh, creating their own, uh, you know, demise or maybe even their own imprisonment because of the way they mistreated each other. And therefore, you know, maybe uh, they should get more involved in, in government to control their lives better. These are not exactly my political beliefs, but I understood what he was trying to say and where he was coming from. And it was an important play uh, back then. Um he became an actor as well. Uh, well, Mr. Pinero, like a, a number of poets, and I wouldn't say they were all Puerto Rican, but in general, there, there's you know a, a good portion of them that were gay. 
and he wound up being married for a while, and then eventually uh, divorcing and and coming out gay, and then wind up living with a man, and you know until until he died, uh, an Asian fellow, by the way, and um, I don't get from the things I read and from the things that people told me about that that wasn't the best transition for him. I mean, you still have to live your truth, and I understand why people would want to come out, but um, I don't always know if that experience is positive for people. I never got the impression uh, from from him that it was. Even when I saw him perform, you know, um, he always seemed to me a, a man that was brave at one point and not at the other, if you understand what I mean by that. Brave in his words, but still just nervous about life and, and the way people look at him. I, I'm sure that was a big thing that was on his mind. I know he suffered from depression and, and various forms of, of mental illness. Uh, no doubt that has a play in it. It, it does for many people who are writers and, or in the creative arts. Um, I, I could say one thing so seriously about, uh, about the Puerto Rican culture is unlike many, many cultures that I experienced throughout the world, and I've been around the world a number of times, they're one of the few cultures that I always felt they took mental illness seriously and they didn't make fun of it and they didn't shun it. In fact, sometimes they even try to treat it culturally or even through uh, religion, which we're going to talk about here in a moment. Um, and that was that was a, just a wonderful, graceful thing to do and, and really a compassionate thing to do. And if you talk about Puerto Ricans, compassion is a big part of what that culture has always been about and what I always found it to be about. I'm not really sure if Miguel Pinero felt that compassion of the people that loved him or, or respected him, in many cases adored him. But uh, it's un it's unfortunate. I don't know if he just was one of those people that withdrew from that from that sort of situation, which sometimes people who are depressive do, and, and that makes it worse, or not. I don't know. I really don't. Maybe we'll we'll never know, but he uh, he brought a lot to people in the in the world, and I know he brought something to me. And when I thought about first becoming a poet and first writing poetry, as much as I knew about Italian literature and the centuries of it, and God bless them all, um, I thought about those men when I was writing. I didn't think about Dante. God bless him. He's a genius. But uh, I didn't think about Dante's Inferno. You know, I, I, I didn't think about anyone but, but those fellows. I just, those were my first experiences. And they spoke to me the most about being in a city and, 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 and feeling like you're a blue collar guy and feeling like you may be on the outs of things. Not, you're not really connected to the American experience in many instances or even the American dream yet, anyway. And. It just made sense. And that's one of the beautiful things about America is you can reach outside of who you are and maybe find, you know, that truth or, or that, or that um, I guess, acceptance. I wish he could have found his. But as they say, he's in a better place and he definitely belongs there. All right. Another thing that I have always found fascinating about Puerto Rico, and it's just some, it's something that it's still extremely misunderstood, and sometimes even in the Puerto Rican community, but it's more understood and accepted there. But you're still going to have members of like, I don't know about that. 
especially if you're just really, really trying to be an American. Some things you just uh, abandon. I know, as, as weird as that might sound. And when my mother first got the um, the training uh, graduate role to be a nurse, they had a, a, a situation, and uh, I don't know, I might have mentioned this before, but I'll, I'll mention it again for the show because it just sort of makes sense to, for you to hear that. Um, my mother in the, in the neighborhood uh, was one of the very first women and one of the very few women as I was growing up that had not only a job on the outside of the family life, but also what you would consider a career. She might have been probably one of the only women in the entire area that even had a college education. She was a, a college graduate. And they had a program at a hospital that it was tired of being understaffed in the nursing capacity. And it was much harder, unlike today, to bring in nurses from the outside world, and, and, and particularly uh, Filipino nurses that uh, that are trained that way in Philippines, even to this day, and, and very very conversive in English, uh, and, and make a, a really good fit. Uh, that was much harder back when I was growing up in, in terms of the, uh, the immigration laws and all of that. So the hospital had a complete understanding, at least they were uh, in, in that practical kind of fashion, that if they were going to grow, I mean, physically, it wasn't uh, about getting more doctors. Well, hell, that was pretty easy. It seemed like everybody and their mother wanted to be a doctor, okay? And it wasn't even that hard getting land. You would not believe how much the city would say, oh, you want to expand the hospital? Yeah, here's some more of our land. You can have it for a penny. I'm not kidding you, literally a penny. Because there was no damn point in having land going where it's just not bringing a rateable to the city, which is a, a political term. It means that you're getting money back from that land because taxes are being paid. Because, you know, when the land's not being used, the city isn't getting anything for it. And oftentimes, because the city owns it, they still have to maintain it, which means that the land costs them more money than it's bringing in. So they don't have to cut the grass anymore. They don't have to make sure it's it's still relatively safe for anybody that goes by. They don't have to maintain the fencing to try to keep people out, blah, blah, blah. Okay? So they're like, yeah, here you go. But the, the hospital had understood that, yeah, all of that stuff is covered. We can get the doctors, we can get the land, we can get the equipment. You know, they just borrow again the, you know, from, the, from the bank because the bank's like, you're a hospital, we, we know you're going to get your money back. They got all that, but they didn't have the nurses, which was critical for any kind of expansion. You can't have, you know, a 600 patients and like 50 nurses. That's just not going to work. <laughs> so they came up with a unique plan that said, listen, if you are somebody that has at least a year of college, preferably two, but even a year, we will fast track your education in the hospital where you could learn how to get a degree and learn to be the nurse at the same time. And if you needed child care for this situation, because they figured the only people who are going to take this job, by the way, are women. I know they have male nurses, and I'm not trying to put, put anything weird on the show here, but when I was growing up, male nurses didn't exist. <laughs> the only time I saw a male nurse was in the Air Force. And even then, I'm like, are you sure you're a nurse? Because <laughs> it was just so unusual. Women were nurses. That's just the way it was. Now, there were still a few, few female doctors, but I'm telling you, they were 100% nurses uh, <laughs> as women. So they offered a child care stipend because they understood as well that 
okay, we get all we got. Uh, we got the education part now. We're gonna get all these people over here, but they have all these childcare needs, and who the hell's gonna be able to do all this work if we're not figuring that out? So, my mother, like most of the women that joined the program, there was a small portion that were not married and didn't have kids, so they didn't have to worry about that. But there was a larger amount that were, including my mother. So she took that, and what that did was, is that for the next three years, okay, and even though my mother actually already had a, a, a two-year education in college and then stopped, um, she still spent the, the entire three-year program doing it at the hospital. They paid for the child care for my mother in this situation. So my mother would literally pay the babysitter from the money that the hospital gave her. They gave her extra money so she can pay the babysitter. In this case, child care. I was never in a daycare center because I don't even know if they existed back when I was growing up. Maybe they did, but I never knew of one at all. Child care was either your mother was doing it, your neighbor was doing it, or a babysitter you were paying was doing it. That was child care. <laughs> there wasn't anything else. So my mother would literally pay this woman to watch me. And what she would do is she'd drop me off about 4 o'clock in the morning. And I would go to this woman's house. <laughs> I'm like walking like a zombie. Running there. I sleep on the couch until she woke me up to have breakfast. And then get ready for me to go to school. She only lived three blocks from the school I went to. So it was literally, I got my little backpack on and just walked three blocks to school. We have such a different world now. You can't let kids who are like seven and eight years old literally walk to school by themselves. I, I swear to God, we just don't have the, the same world. I did it naturally, normally. I never felt I was in danger. It seemed normal and, and fine to me. I say hello to the crossing guard because I had to cross that main street to get to the school, but it was just three blocks. Hello to the crossing guard. I go to school. That was it. Come back for lunch. Come back to her house for lunch. Because at that point, my mother would be just getting off a shift and she wasn't be making lunch because she was crashed out sleeping. That's pretty much what my, my school life was for a number of years. And this babysitter was a Puerto Rican woman. I, I'd say probably maybe in her mid-30s, I would say. Because, you know, she wasn't old, but she wasn't like really young either, you know. But she was like all the Puerto Rican women I've ever known in my life. Funny, beautiful, and, and and just interesting. And they always had something interesting about him. Her, what she was interested in is she was what they called a, 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 a Santera, which was a Santeria priestess. Now, in Puerto Rico and in, in Cuba and Mexico and a, and a few other places, uh, a Santeria had spread. Uh, and it spread by those that had the combination of the colonization and African slavery where the African uh, people that came to those locations, they wind up bringing, which in this particular case was uh, a Western African religion from either um, uh, Nigeria or Benin. Those are the two uh, uh, modern countries now that you can call that region. Uh, what they call the Yoruba, the tribes. And they brought a, a religion that had a main god and then it had like a number of sub-gods or smaller gods. And when you combined the... Um, and I'm sorry to say, early, early on, a forced um, conversion to Christianity or Roman Catholicism, definitely. Uh, with that, 
it, it made a, 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 a interesting fit because you can now make your little mini gods the saints of Catholicism, and then the big main god was the god that we all believed in, you know, uh, Jehovah or the main one god. So in many ways, it became like a religion that you can both uh, be monotheistic and polytheistic at the same time. I know it sounds a little confusing, but that's always how I uh, viewed it. She was a priestess in that religion. So I grew up most parts of the day around the various candles, the various uh, saints and, and, and gods that she had talked about. Um, just like every other person I ever met that practiced Santeria, she never tried to push it on anybody. If you were curious, they answered the questions. If you wasn't, they leave it alone. That's it. They just they wasn't people that try to evangelize the moment. It just wasn't. They never practiced it in secret, but they always kept it in something that I, I would consider private. It's just I guess that was just the best way to do it. And I can understand why too, because if you don't understand what was going on, you're going to get a weird stereotype. Oh, it's the occult. Oh, it's the devil. Oh, it's this. So it's 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 none of that stuff at all. It's quite positive. And, and nothing to do with uh, any of that, you know. Um, and th that's why I got walks to the, um, sometimes um, my mother had to do something special and she'd be out of the area and she'd just literally call her, what are you doing? Can you mind, you know, I'd send him over there and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, she's doing her errands and stuff. So I might be in the store with her or I might be going to the, to the, uh, to the, the botanica because she needed to pick up some one candles and, and talk to this woman about this and that and whatever. Many of the people that that owned the Botanica often uh, had a, either a Santeria connection or were people that practiced it themselves or at least understood a lot of the stuff that was going on, including many of the products that they sold because, you know, well, that's only good business, I guess. But uh, I never I never went to a Botanica. They didn't have a connection that way and didn't understand what was going on. So that was her main place to get everything that she needed. So I was familiar with going to there as well. And mind you, I'm not Puerto Rican. <laughs> I don't speak Spanish. Um, and uh, it's an unusual experience at first. And then like anything else, you, you get used to it. It becomes part of you that you're like, oh, yeah, okay, I got that. Yeah, no problem. It, it, just, it just becomes part of, your, of, of growing up. I had an unusual thing happen. And... I, I don't know how to explain it. I just I say it, okay? Um, there was a point in in my life earlier on from like maybe, I think when I was around about maybe five and a half to about around, around eight or so, a little bit after eight years old. I, I had, um, I had a, a muscle development problems in my legs and, to the point where I had to be in a wheelchair or in some cases I could use um, those um, those leg coverings that, that kind of helped you walk. I think that, well, I always called them a brace anyway, a leg brace. Um, back in my day, of course, uh, there wasn't, I guess you could say, uh, fancy or blending into things now where they're not so uh so intrusive or, or so uh you know intimidating uh they were quite old-fashioned and quite weird looking and you, you kind of look like a freak at times i was like I'm, let me just stay in the damn wheelchair 
but you know the doctor and of course my mother encouraged me to uh you know to do whatever i can to 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 spur the the, the muscle um um strength to where eventually this could you know phase out because they said that that would happen if i try to be as active as possible i wasn't always that interested in that you know but quite frankly it's a it's a horrible experience and uh i think i mentioned in the book that i'm writing right now that uh uh, my mother refused to even keep photographs. She uh, oftentimes tried to just keep me away from people. And, and many and there was a point in school where I literally went to school at home. They just sent the stuff, and that's how we did it. And, and Until eventually I got strong enough to where it wasn't such a problem to go to school with a brace on or sometimes even in a wheelchair. At that point, I was just crossing over into the babysitting part of what we were just talking about before. So, my uh, my babysitter, who by the way her name was Yolanda, so um, I don't often give names to things that goes on because I don't want to cause people embarrassment or dis disrespect. And uh, uh, but I always I always loved the woman and everything she did for me. And uh, she's no longer with us, and we'll talk about that. And she's just needs to be named in, in, in the situation. Uh, she was not only compassionate, but she was very positive about the things. And, and, and I tell you one thing, she was kind of strong about it in, in one of those tough love kind of fashions about, um, yeah, um, you think you're going to roll over here to the table to eat breakfast? You need to get your ass up and walk over here and eat your breakfast. You know, things like that, where it's like, oh, God, she's killing me here. But I needed that. And my mother wasn't going to be around. Um even though she said some of the same things. So it just, it just made sense to have somebody like that who later on I realized was in my corner, so to speak, and, and helped me through that. You know, especially since um, once I started going back to regular school, I, I, I was not comfortable at all. I didn't encounter as much ridicule or bullying or anything like that as I thought I would, which to this day I'm surprised. I don't know if I was lucky. I don't know if just no one gave a crap. <laughs> I just don't know, you know. But what I do know is that the, the Puerto Rican girls that were in my classroom, they were always kind to me and they were always respectful. And they never made me feel like I was less than a boy or less than a human being. So I always remembered that. And it was also, though, why I became more, I think I, mean, I think I became more formative about how I viewed people in general. Because I, I became a little bit more cynical and, and grew up a little bit faster that way. Because when you're sitting around and you can't get too active in what's going on, you see the people that betray each other before your eyes. And you see the people that are kind when they didn't have to be kind. And you see the jerks and you see the decency. And you just see a lot of, a lot of crap about people, even if they're children, that it, it has an impression on you. It, 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 it said to me that... God Almighty, this is the world I'm going to have to go to once my legs come back to where they need to be at. I, and I don't know if I'm ready for that. I need to be ready for that, but I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. I could barely walk. But those are the ideas I already had, and I was like seven. <laughs> you know, I, I I talked to my mother about that, and my mother was a, a pretty rough woman, and she was just like, yeah, that's the world, and don't worry about it. You'll be ready for it. Now, you know, eat your dinner and, you know, shut the hell up. That's pretty much how she approached it. 
My babysitter, on the other hand, was was a different person about that. She had a, a Santa Rear perspective to it, that there were spirits that would watch me if if I allowed that to happen. Uh, that um, my questions were valid and legitimate, but I couldn't let them dominate who I was because then I let the bad that's in the world come inside my life, and that's not a good way to live life. That's pretty much how she approached it. It was simple for, enough for me to understand. I remained a church-going person and a Protestant. I never adopted or, or, or initiated myself into Santeria, not even to this day. Not because I thought that it was anything weird with it. I just... I never felt it was, it was necessary. I just felt comfortable enough. I respected it. I took it seriously. I always have. Uh, but I never did. I don't know if I ever will. But I've always been fascinated with it. And I've always respected the people. I swear to you, I never met a Santa Rita person that wasn't decent and kind and didn't have a, a beautiful heart that you could just see from the distance. You don't have to get up close. You could just see. It's just something beautiful about those people. And when I told my babysitter Yolanda about this, she told me something strange. I didn't take her seriously. She said, I'm, I've been praying for you lately, and I got a message that when you're done with those leg braces, your legs are going to be back to normal. And not only are they going to be back to normal, you're never going to be sick, ever, until you become an adult. The rest of your childhood, you're never going to be sick. Never. I'm like, uh, yeah, that's 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 a good thought. <laughs> Thanks, appreciate that. You know, best wishes, all right, no problem. And, you know, I, um, I did what I normally did. I, uh, because I walked to school years later, but... That first, like, four or five months, just when I was ending this thing, I still was doing a little bit of the wheelchair. And then I, at one point, because she'd be with me, I put it to the side, I put the braces on, and I walk into school. I always felt that that was uh, what I should do. I, I, I'm, I know it had more to do with being insecure and just trying to be a man <laughs> at eight. <laughs> but um, that's what I did. I just felt that that was where I could get my dignity from. I didn't want to roll my stupid butt into school with a wheelchair. And I'm telling you right now that anybody's listening to this in a wheelchair or anything, I'm, I'm not making fun of you, and I don't think anything is wrong with it. Those are just my feelings back then when I had to deal with that as a child. And I didn't take her seriously. I mean, I took her seriously that she prayed, and I took her seriously that there's spirits out there that, that can watch over you. I didn't have any problem with that sort of thinking. It actually made sense to me. But that they would give a crap about me at all, well, that didn't make a whole lot of sense. I wasn't adherent to Santeria. Hell, I wasn't even much of a good Protestant. <laughs> I wasn't just much of any of that, actually. I, I more cared about books and, and, and just cared about watching people in terms of observation and just trying to learn all of that. And I didn't really think that religion had a whole lot to say to me. Um, but... Something happened, and what happened was is that I'm in class in one day, and then there's kids that are not showing up, and I thought that was kind of weird. And then the teacher gave an announcement, hey, we got some smallpox, excuse me, not smallpox, chickenpox going on, and we have a lot of kids that are out. 
I'm like, oh my God, wow. And this happened over the next, I'd say, maybe 18 months, two years, something like that. People had mumps. People had measles. People had chicken pox. A couple people had that meningitis thing, or what the hell you call that? Oh, no, I'm sorry, not meningitis. Mono, mononucleosis, I think. You know, that kissing disease? Yeah, they got a few people that had that. And, and, I'm, and I'm like, what the hell? And I just pushed it aside and went forward. I, I didn't think too much more of it. Until one day, my babysitter's like, did you notice anything? And I'm like, yeah, I'm starting to run now. My legs are stronger. I could walk. And uh, see, I'm noticing that I'm, I'm feeling like a freaking human being again. I'm, I'm noticing that. And she's like laughing. Oh, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm like, well, then I don't know what you're talking about. She's like, you haven't had any illness. You don't have any childhood disease. You're in the classroom with these people. I already know what's going on. Three of my neighbors have this. And that's when it struck me, like, could that be possible? Could it be possible that she called spirits to protect me from childhood diseases? I say all this because even to this day, the ramifications of not having any childhood disease traveled through my entire life. It's become a real touchstone of everything that's gone on with me. When I told the Air Force this, they're like, okay, we'll make a note. No problem. Meanwhile, you guys take your regular vaccinations and, you know, all the other stuff you have to do. All right, no problem. You did that. When we had to go to uh, Liberia, when, when they had an outbreak of, of, uh, of mumps there, my command is like, Sergeant Rossi, you can't go. Now, this is one of the first few maintenance missions that I, I could have gone on to. I wanted to go on at least one or two of these while I was in the Air Force. I thought it'd be a nice, nice thing to learn to help people do some stuff. Maybe I could go to Africa because it's not some place I normally get a chance to go to. Nope. And I'm like, why? He goes, there's a mumps breakout. You, you don't have any childhood diseases, according to the record. We can't send you there. As an adult, you get mumps. You have no protection because you never had it before. You will be sterile. And we, we have a medical obligation to not allow that to happen. I'm like, uh, yeah, I got you. No problem. I guess I'm not going. So that was that. And it wasn't until many years later when I got married and, and, and wanted to have children that when I talked to the pediatrician, he said the same thing. He goes, oh, by the way, Mr. Rossi, we need to spend the next month giving you all the rounds of shots that we give children because you don't have any protection against any of these. Remember, you're an older man now with, with children. They get any of these diseases, you get them, you're going to be in deep trouble. So I wound up having to get all those shots again, which was around, let me see here, about maybe 13 years ago. So wasn't that long ago. So all of that from then to now. It's just amazing how those things affect your life. You know, I'm 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 not a uh, I'm not a person that uh, that will tell you a hundred percent. This is what happened. Maybe it was scientifically a coincidence. Maybe somehow I don't know how, but maybe somehow I just never caught anything from uh, from anybody in the classroom. I was never one of those touchy feely kind of guys anyway. I thought that was like yucky. You know, I've always been one of those guys that I didn't even like. I didn't even like guys. 
Half the times later on when I grew up and I started beating up bullies, I did it more because I didn't like the guy than I didn't like the fact that he was a bully. I just always felt more comfortable around women. I think maybe because they read books, because they understood something about literature, uh, because obviously they're a lot prettier than than boys because, you know, I'm heterosexual. <laughs> so that really helps. Uh, but I just, I was never uncomfortable around them like some guys can be. It, it's part of the reason why and, and many and many aspects of, of the book I'm writing right now and some of the experiences I went through, particularly in Germany, where it, it, it certainly appeared that I, I had a little bit more experience with uh, with women in general than everybody else's only because I was just that comfortable, period. And I think the comfortable becomes like a, a type of a confidence and, and without trying to sound stereotypical to women or, or, or being too generalized, my experience with women generally is that they, they respond more to men that are a little bit more confident than men who are not. So... It, it might have gave me a little bit more of an edge, <laughs> so to speak. But it's just always who I've been. Now, somebody asked me, and I'll, and I'll certainly tell you that on the show, I don't publish women in my uh, aerial chart uh, journal or, or have women in um, for the interviews because, yeah, I love women and it's really fun. The, the truth of that matter is, is completely the opposite. It, it's because... Women are more willing to get onto the show and write and speak and be a voice on things than men are. And and mathematically, there's simply more women out there writing and reading and getting more involved and willing to share their stories than men are. That's just the truth. It's simply the numbers. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't mind having a few more male perspectives now and then, but it, it's not so easy to come by. And wouldn't believe how many will turn me down or just not interested and feel uncomfortable or whatever. And that's that, you know, so... That's the truth of that. So, yeah, I do enjoy talking to women. I It's always who I've been. But in the end, it's really about that. So I always say, and I say now, I'm happy to talk to people on the show about writing. I don't really care who you are and where you're from. But uh, it looks like, uh, mathematically speaking, you're probably more likely to be a woman than a man. <laughs> That's just the way it is. You know, Maybe I'll have a streak where I have a few more guys for a change, but I don't know. And I'm all right with that. It's there's nothing unusual about that. But in case somebody was noticing, that's that's the truth of it all. Now, I bring up the Santeria thing not only because it is a part of a, a Puerto Rican culture and it's a part of how I was growing up and, and what I learned, but also because the um, the two people I knew that I was closest to uh, that had some connection to it was was Yolanda, my babysitter who I stood in contact with my whole life until she died. And I, I sent the family something that would be Santeria-related just to show my respects because, you know, she was wonderful. And my first girlfriend, her, her name was uh, Tanya, which I always thought was funny because it's like, that's not exactly a Spanish name. But she said, uh, I'm probably saying it wrong. <laughs> and I probably am. There's probably a, a, def, a, a way to say Tanya that would be a lot more Spanish than I am. But that's how I said it. And that's how I was comfortable saying it. And she didn't seem to mind. And that was my, uh, I, I guess you can say my first official like girlfriend. Um, back then, though, we never really referred to it as a girlfriend. I mean, quite frankly, I'm 11. And we went together until I was 13, and then when her family moved back to Puerto Rico, 
That was it. I, I, nev I never saw her again. Um, they used to call it going steady. <laughs> That's what they used to call it back then. So, I mean, God, I don't know. I sound old when I say that, especially since when I hear people say that now, they're talking about the 50s, and I'm not talking about the 50s. I'm not that old, but I am definitely talking about the 70s. Um, but that's what we called it. And I thought we had a great time, and uh, I learned a lot more about Puerto Rican culture, uh, more about eating Puerto Rican food, which I just love. And there aren't a lot of Puerto Rican restaurants out there in the world. I mean, I grew up with a few, which was pretty amazing. But most of the times, your experience with Puerto Rican food is you're hanging out with a Puerto Rican family. They got some food there, and you're like, okay, let's, let's do it. You know? I can't tell you how how satisfying it is to, to, to have food with people who give a crap about the food that they make. They can talk about it and, and enjoy it. And it's, it's very Italian because very, Italian people do this a lot. And when I was with my own family and with other families that were Italian, it was the same way. Where, where dinner wasn't like a damn funeral. Shut up. Eat your food. All right, now you can go home and play. I mean, it wasn't any of that kind of crap. I, to me, that's a, a very American experience, and I just never appreciated that. And I've never adopted it, by the way. I'm an American. I fought for my country. I served my country. I'm proud of my country in many ways, but there's some aspects of America I'm, I'm never going to practice or be part of. I just, it's not me. And I don't believe that the dinner needs to be a funeral, okay? Let the damn funeral be a funeral. Let the dinner be something that is celebrating life. And that's what I liked about Puerto Ricans the most, of anything at all. You could talk about their poets all day long. We could talk about how beautiful the women are, which we'll have a segment on the show where we talk about that. Yeah, that's right. And we could talk about their family life, and we could talk about the the, the, the religion, or, or we could even talk about Santeria. We could talk about the music. We could talk about... Just their, their fierce independence. But I swear to God, you can't talk about anything about Puerto Ricans unless you talk about how much they love life and how much they celebrate it and how it means something. And it means a lot to me because when I was growing up, especially when I had problems with walking, I mean, that made all the difference to me because it's like I can look forward to that. That could be something important, you know? That I can say, hey, maybe I'll never be as good as the dancer you are. And by the way, the first dance I learned was, was dancing uh, from Puerto Ricans. I still suck at doing it, but I still I liked it because I could move my legs and do something. And, and, and maybe I can feel that connection to, yeah, I like living life. Yeah, I like life. And, and quite frankly, maybe I, you know, don't make the Puerto Rican girl think I'm some boring white guy. <laughs> so a little bit of all of that. But nevertheless, it was a it was a beautiful thing, and, and they they bring they bring that out you out of you because that's that's inside of them. And I always love that about about Puerto Rico and, and and Puerto Ricans and and the meal. And by the way, most of the food that Puerto Ricans put together, I learned to love. There's a few things I don't because I'm I'm just not a fish guy on any culture. I just don't really care. I mean, other than tuna fish, I don't even care about fish at all. Okay, so, you know, and uh, I even ate, I even ate the, the, the tripe, um, 
that that uh, that that would be in some of the Puerto Rican meals, which is, is I think it's some kind of a stomach of the cow or something. I swear to God, if you think about it more, you're like, I don't know if I can eat it. But if you don't, you're like, hey, this is not bad, you know. And uh, I, I'm not sure if they call that uh, like menudo or something like that, but I, I think it's something close to that, you know. And I didn't really like this whole bacalao thing, which is kind of a salty fish thing. I'm like, no, I'm just once I had these things, I'm like. I'll go with the with the stomach of the cow, but I'm not doing this fish at all ever, and I never did. So whenever somebody had a fish meal, I'm like, just just give me the rice and beans, and and I'll drink some Kool Aid, okay? But I'm, we're not having no fish over here, all right? They laugh and they they'd be good about that. I, that's another wonderful thing about Puerto Ricans is that you didn't have to do everything they were doing for you to be appreciated by them and for them for them to accept you. They're like, yeah, you want to just do this and that? Okay, great, you know. They let me have the, some of this uh, Cafe Bustelo, which is like a like an espresso coffee that Puerto Ricans would, would boil the water and then put it through the strainer. And man, is it strong. I swear to God, you don't even need drugs. Just drink that. When I went to Turkey, years later, I, I the first time I drank it, I'm like, this is like Puerto Rico. <laughs> I mean, it was just awesome. And um, and I was young drinking that. I'm like, man, I'm wired. And I'm like, this is great. So... I think I'd go to Puerto Rican sometimes just to eat the food and get a little wired from the coffee, which they were kind of cool about doing when I was young. But I'm like, this is this is how I like to do it. I even tried to convince my mother to make it at the house. She's like, uh, I don't even know where to buy it at. I'm like, it's in the damn store. You don't have to go to a Puerto Rican store. They're everywhere. You know? Back in the in the day, they had that A&P store, and that was the big supermarket for us, and they sold that. And they sold a lot of Goya products that were made and they were catered for Puerto Rican tastes. So we would get the um, the, the powder that you can make the, the sofrito in, which is a way to, to colorize the rice and make it uh, yellowish uh, versus the white rice. You know, I, I learned a number of things uh, just by going to the store with my babysitter and watching her do things. I, I thought it was pretty damn interesting. I couldn't get my mother to adapt to half of this crap, but, you know, she thought it was funny that I was I was learning these things because she thought that in the end... Just like with Santeria, uh, she didn't take any weird offense to it. She just thought it was a way for me to learn more about the world and that that was a better thing rather than just sitting in the, in the house looking through the window, you know, feeling sorry for myself because I was in a wheelchair. And as much as I can tell you that my mother can have been a, a bit emotionally distant and but just a tough woman from many of the things that she either had gone through or many of the things that maybe she was going through, uh... In her own weird way, you know, she was she was loving and compassionate, and I just think that kind of like the military, where you don't do the duty, but rather you delegate the duty because it was important for that person to kind of get that task, you know, in hand. I think in many ways she kind of delegated, you know, some love and maybe some compassion to the babysitter because in, in many ways I thought she thought that, you know, um, she could accomplish more things with that than than maybe she could herself. I think she uh, intellectually understood that. I just don't think that she emotionally was available or just capable of doing that, if that makes any sense. So, in a weird way, I always thought I had, like, two mothers. And I don't mean that in a lesbian sense, because <laughs> I know that's a common experience now. I see that actually every day, going to soccer practice and things. It's just common. But I, I, I back then, I just thought, I was like, I got, like, two mothers. I got a mother that... That's really an intellectual, hardworking person that could tell you something about the world and politics and, and that sort of thing. And then I had a mother that 
you know, she could break it on down about the world and the, and life and heart and spirits and, and, and spirit world even, you know, and, and I just felt like I was kind of getting the best of, of both worlds that way, that together they, they gave me what I, I thought I needed. Does that make any sense? Now, one of the things I always laughed about when I, when I lived in Germany and I dated in Germany and, uh, I use the word dated uh, loosely, okay? But uh, uh, it's family show, and I don't want to go too much farther than that. Um, I was laughed and said, uh, and I didn't tell this to any of the German women because they wouldn't know what the hell I'm talking about. Because, by the way, unless you were in the Air Force or the Army, I never met another Puerto Rican in, in, in the society itself. They, just, they were simply ones that were in the military. So I never met a Puerto Rican girl in Germany. So I always said to myself, you know, they, they have... They have a lot of similarities to, to the Puerto Rican girls that I, that I liked. And um, not in terms of uh, uh, fashion or hair because, God, it's so, so many blonde people in, in Germany. It's, you know, you got to get used to it. And I don't think I ever did get used to it, to be honest, be honest with you. It's just, it never really clicked with me. But, you know, you have to make sacrifices and compromises if you want to have a dating life and you're going to be there five years. <laughs> you better get used to it, you know. But, um. They had the attitude that I grew up with that I adopted to women that, that it's just who I am as a man and maybe as a heterosexual man that I did not find women who didn't love food attractive. I just, to this day, it's just not me at all. I, if, you, if, you, if you're that skinny and you're worried about your weight and, you, and, you're, and your arms have died and this is important, then I, I, God bless you. You have a right to do that, but there's another guy out there for you because it's not me. And I like that about the German woman. They, they, they had that, I like food. I have no problem with owning that. And so that was always a, a, a wonderful thing for me because I remember first starting to go out with, um, with German women and wondering what the hell am I going to experience here? Because it's not like there was some book out of there. This is how to date a German woman. And this is what a German woman, there was no such thing. Because if there was, I would have go got that book. I can tell you that right now. I had to find out for myself, which is, well, it's a scary thing. Because after all of that experience, and, and I mean that in a respectful way, and, and all of that contact and knowledge about being with girls and women and all of that, I, I swear to God, I go to Germany and, and, I, and I feel like I'm starting from like zero. <laughs> I'm back to the, being the, the scared kid that don't know what the hell's going on. And it's unusual and when I saw that a woman like loving food and not giving a crap about any of that nonsense then I'm like wow that's I felt comfortable then not completely comfortable because I'm still dealing with people that English is not their first language and you'd be amazed how you have to try to catch some German yourself and try to put it together to be able to make any kind of connection I mean, not everybody was speaking regular English there were a lot of people that do. Don't get me wrong, but, you know, um, it was conversational at best. I, I never met that many English women. Uh, it's going to be that many German women that spoke fluent English. It wasn't that common. It simply wasn't. More common in the bigger cities. But I lived in a smaller community, a military community, and the towns were smaller, and they were much more traditional in that respect. They didn't really have as much contact unless it was with, you know, Americans. To, to a certain extent. So I kind of like 
use that as my way of trying to feel comfortable. You know, and then uh, as I went along, it, it became more of a, okay, now I can feel confident again. I just have to feel confident in the German type of way because I can't be the typical American in this situation. And I certainly can't go around thinking that every German girl, you know, is just simply a Puerto Rican girl who speaks German because that's stupid. <laughs> but um, for a while, I, I kind of thought that way just because it was the only way I can keep myself from running out of a restaurant or, or dodging the bar or just like peeing myself, you know, because I'm like, Jesus, this is a lot to, you know, to deal with. And, uh, but it was a good experience to have because it allowed me in many ways to uh, branch myself out in terms of, you know, learning how to, to, to deal with more people. Because I think that's one of the problems when people stay in one place for too long is that they don't really learn all of those type of people skills beyond just the comforts of home or the, com the comforts of the community or, or the comforts of, the, of a common culture. And then you go outside of that and you're like, ugh. You know, so... That definitely made me a little bit uh, more, um, I guess you could say, confident about all of that. And it was it served well because I had, to, I had to travel to lots of other places in the nature of my work to other countries. And I felt a little more confident that, hey, I, I got a better grounding there in Germany. It helped me do that. And I'm writing a book about a lot of that. And it can be rough sometimes about Germany. I mean, uh, I, I'm not going to be dishonest in the book. But uh, there was a lot of wonderful things, and that was one of them. And, and I'll make sure that I look at it. You know, before I, I send it out to make sure it includes something like that. If it doesn't, I need to put that in there because I don't want to be uh, dishonest in any fair accident or otherwise. And I certainly don't want to be unfair because that, that is definitely the truth. All right. The last segment of the show, and I don't mean to make it last. It's just it's better that way. OK, is Puerto Rican women. <laughs> I, 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 I tell people all the time this. OK, and, and I don't talk to people about Puerto Rican women all the time about this, but in general. OK especially if it's something that relates to sexuality. And I don't mean this to sound political, but it's probably going to sound political, and, and that's too bad. But we live, in the, we live in a world right now, particularly in America, where everybody wants to be something, and they want to talk about it, and maybe even sometimes celebrate it, or even in, in some essences kind of put it in your face. I'm okay with all that. I've never had a problem with any of that. But what I do have a problem with is that when I have to say something, suddenly I'm the I'm the racist because, you know, I want to talk about my culture. I don't know how I'm a racist being somebody who's biracial, but <laughs> I've heard this before, believe it or not. Ha! You're just a descendant of Christopher Columbus and he was a genocidal nutball. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate that. Um, he discovered Puerto Rico, okay? He didn't discover America, so calm down, all right? And, and, and be accurate, <laughs> All right. And, and, and it's the same thing with sexuality, too. I mean, you, I've had people literally say to me, you know, I, I don't really feel comfortable with with, you know, how you heterosexually go about things. You got too many women in your pictures, in, in your podcast art, or you let a lot of people write a lot of heterosexual sexual stuff in your, in your journal. I go, actually, I'm pretty conservative and I don't allow anything that's graphic, first of all. And second of all, I don't understand why I'm supposed to hide this or put this to the side so you can feel comfortable about being gay or about being lesbian or about being uh, transgender or about being anything that you feel it's comfortable. Pansexual, I don't know what the hell. They have all these different terms now. Fine. I, I've never been against any of that. I, I, I put that in, in art when it becomes art because I think it's necessary and I think it's important. I think it's honest. But I don't believe, and I'm never going to go with this whole notion that 
I need to tuck away the Italian part of me and only talk about the Chinese part because otherwise you're not going to feel racially comfortable. Well, I have to learn to get along with people and understand what's going on in this world because I think that's my job as a person, as a father, as a husband, as an artist, as a writer. I think that's important for me to do. I don't know why you don't think that's important for you to do. I got to talk to you about my Chinese side, but uh, I can't talk to you about my Italian side. I don't know. Maybe I could talk to you about both sides. Don't get that. So you got some folks out there. They have this kind of mentality. I don't find it acceptable. In fact, I find it in its own right to be bigoted. And it's the same thing with sexuality. I mean, you'll have people that literally after the show, oh my God, I can't believe you're talking about how beautiful uh, Puerto Rican women are and how you uh, have a real affinity for them. And that's just my nice way of saying, you know, I don't know, I guess lust or sexual attraction or whatever. We'll, we'll go with affinity. It doesn't bother me, okay? But... I can have I can have people in, in poems and writing. I can have people talk to me on the phone. I can have people in, in the podcast talk about wanting to have uh, relations with men or, or lesbian women that want to read lesbian poems. And this is okay because yeah, it is okay. But I need to be in part of that that argument or that that conversation as well. Okay. Because that's what diversity is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be excluding everybody but anybody who's of color. It means that we're all together involved. It means that when I tell you about how beautiful I think the sexual, attractive uh, Puerto Rican woman is, you should be able to say, yeah, it's great. And this guy over here, my God, what muscles he has. And I'm all right with that. I don't connect with that. I don't understand that in that kind of way. But I can say, yeah, I, I got where you're coming from because... That's what's turning you on? Well, hell, this is what's turning me on. You know, Italian and, and, and Puerto Rican women to me, that my God, I think they're almost interchangeable because they, they have the things that I prefer to see in a woman. <laughs> somebody that doesn't get frightened about food and, and, and somebody that, that wants to be boisterous, that wants to be a, a bit loud, that wants to be almost uh, kind of confrontational. I, it's just, it's alluring. It's, it's exciting. It's interesting. It, it's how I grew up and, and how I prefer to see it. Uh, people will say to you, well, gee, they never went outside of that. I'm like, yeah, I got five years of, of sleeping with German women. Okay. So I, I spent a whole lot of time not doing any of that. So I know all about that in Spain and in Denmark too. All right. And in the Philippines. So I, I know a whole lot about being with other people, but in the end, it's where I come back to where who I am. I enjoy all the other times I had around the world, but that's who I am. And that's what you need to find out when you, when you try to learn more about yourself is what, what, what brings you to the table, so to speak. And you could take that term as any way you wanted to. But in the end, what brings you to the table? You'd be surprised on how many people can't even give you an answer to that. Because they, even they don't know. I say to writers all the time. You have to find out something about yourself. Because it's what's going to make you the unique writer. It's going to make you powerful. Well, it's really no different in a human sense. You know? And, I, and it's no slight to anybody at all. It's just you learn who you are. And I, I've always had both a... The respect and and the uh, the confidence to, to say that hey that's that's who I am. I could have spent all that time outside of all of that, and in the end, 
that's where I came back to because that's what made me the happiest, so to speak. And, and, and maybe even the most fulfilled. And again, you could take that in all the different ways you might want to take fulfilled. So, and I could say it as a straight guy, okay? And you could take it as a joke or you could take it seriously. It's up to you. But I've always felt that Puerto Rican women are the most beautiful women in the world. I always felt that. I always felt that there was a reason why Miss Universe was picking them a lot because <laughs> they knew what they were talking about. They, 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 they understood that. And, and, and quite frankly, um, maybe it is, it is what I grew up in, what I saw, and I just felt the most comfortable with. There could always be that psychological thing there, sure. I don't think it makes you strange or crazy, you know, and, and I, but I, 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 I've told people my whole life and I, I'll still tell them until I die, you know, if you haven't dated a Puerto Rican girl yet, you, you don't really have a full understanding of the full range of what a woman is about. <laughs> you just don't. And that's just my feeling about it and, and my experience. Maybe you do and then you're like, hey, I don't know what you're talking about. That's possible, but you know. You should try it. <laughs> that's that's the truth. All right, folks. I know it's a weird note to end the show, but that is uh, my thoughts on Puerto Rico. I probably should call the show my thoughts on Puerto Rico, but I'm just going to call it Puerto Rico because I'm, I'm comfortable with that. All right. This is MindSpeak. I'm your host, Mark Anthony Rossi. I hope you got something out of it. If it was not educational entertainment, maybe just something a little bit about myself. But, you know, as I get older, as I want to write different things, I, I learn more and more things about myself and... I figured, hey, maybe this is not something I should like hide anymore. Maybe I should just be happy. I don't know why, but throughout my entire life, there's always a Puerto Rican girl that comes around that just reminds you that this this is important to talk about, and this is this is somebody that it's almost like a, a spiritual like wind wind vein. It's like go this direction. Hey, don't forget about this. It's they're, they're almost like spiritual beings that that give me luck and and, and, and comfort and, and even even just contentment so I'm happy to continue to to meet and talk to people like this artistically and, and, and otherwise and, and just feel that that's a very 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 special place and and whatever is going on over there you know do whatever you can to support those people in, in that island because uh, they deserve it God bless folks until next time Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by purchasing an ebook at Soma Publishing, www.somapublishing.com.